So if you ask me, like you already realized I'm not so gentle on disciplines, but probably the last one that is going to remain is I think philosophy. And I always tell our students, it, like if it's not your main focus, after hours in the evening, you should all be philosophers. Welcome to the Finding Sustainability podcast. This is Stefan Pardolo, and you just heard a clip from this podcast with my good friend and colleague, Henrik von Verden. Henrik is the Dean of the Faculty of Sustainability at Lufana University in Germany, where he is also the Professor of Quantitative Methods and Sustainability Science. Henrik and I discuss his daily routine and how he thinks about organizing his time personally in his working group and in the faculty. We also discuss meditation and his academic philosophy, including the benefits, downsides uh, of a disciplinary-oriented science system, the usefulness of doing a literature review, the funding landscape in Europe for sustainability science projects, and some of his personal experiences doing field research and traveling. So I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did with Henrik von Verden. And sometimes also can be creative, but also sometimes I think it's weird if you ask me. Like we, for instance, regularly have here the long night of writing. Mm -hmm. And I don't believe in a long night of uh, writing. I believe in a long night of sleep. <laughs> you know, it's like, <laughs> I, I don't get it why people would. It's like the long night of the museum, you know, and suddenly like people at two o'clock uh, at night are interested in quantum physics. Uh, but uh, on the normal day, they would never be like that. So I think we are, yeah, I don't know, fully understand. What is the way that you think about your daily schedule, which you mentioned earlier, you have a specific routine? Yes. Uh, yeah, I'm very glad because as actually a student of ours, um, like I think my day is fairly structured. I, I also recognized when I exchange with colleagues, there's some sort of a co-evolutionary pattern, how you structure your day in in our daily life but I always wanted to do certain things where I felt I struggle like for instance doing sun salutations in the morning I thought it could be really nice and I always thought I, I can't manage and then the student of ours said she does one and a half hours of yoga every day and I was quite baffled also like because I think she's a good student and there I felt um, like ah, something has to be done and that, that was when I thought okay I, like get up in the morning and I instantly make 10 minutes and 10 minutes I can do then I bring the kids to school then I go to university at some point over the day I meditate because I think it's helpful for me I bring my own food which is essential because there isn't any food here for me and then in the evening I do yoga and the nice thing is ever since I structured the day like that except for when I was sick once I there's no way out like sometimes I feel like oh, really this evening but somehow I always manage you know for me because otherwise I wouldn't have the discipline is I think is very nice and it gives me stability over the day. everything else fluctuates like disasters happen people come in now you have to improvise and then you still want to work and so on but that is really like the fixed point where i um, like resolve around what is like the what is the kind of diminishing returns point on the meditation routine in terms of the the, the amount of minutes that you put into it per day nah. that's difficult i think because um there's diff like I think there are for me extremely different levels of meditation so they probably it's easiest if I differentiate into three levels so the the third level is the easiest 
uh, really deep meditation, like really long meditation. And that is something that I actually right now constantly try to avoid. Because I feel if I do like an hour of meditation or something like that, like that opens all sorts of doors, all sorts of perspectives where I have to confess I right now decided for this reality. And like there's much to be done, but maybe at a later stage. So this is really something where since a year or so I'm funnily enough going out. So it's more like these 10, 15 minutes things. And this is a little bit like a toolbox. Like I have different tools. I know these tools. And know what they do for me at a certain stage and point in time and I use them but actually probably the most beneficial ones and this is not what I meant when I said before I do meditation at the university is the 10 second things like sometimes when you just breathe once that changes everything and I can really feel how all the like facial muscles relax and how I instantly go into kind of like a more resilient mode and that is that is i think the key thing over the time but i i got that from the longer meditation things that i actually realized okay this is how it works for me right 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 i mean from an ex and there's quite a bit of research on like the benefits of meditation from that perspective but from an experiential perspective as an academic there's just so much stress what is the way that you how has that benefited how you organize your daily your daily kind of stress or the busyness how has meditation played a role there so I'm never stressed. I don't know why. Uh, look, uh, you heard that before like, it ended a few years ago. I, right now I'm widely amused about things. So that is, I think, for me a rather good reality. Still, what I think is important to what I would call reboot the brain, that's one very important thing. And that studies have shown, right, that you could also read the maybe like a, a cornflakes uh, kind of like box or something like if you just do something fundamentally different for a short amount of time that seems to be beneficial right so and um, that is i think one thing the other thing is and this is i think is a rather personal thing i'm not quite sure what to make of that but like for me really weird is uh, in buddhism people call that this buddha's eye that you have between your eyes a little bit on top and some medical studies show there, there might be something. My theory is something like the fear center or I don't know. And at some point I, I kind of learned to switch that off. And I really like that. Like I think now it's more a thing that it's not on anymore, but I can still somehow go deeper there. And it's really weird to explain, but when I somewhat activate it, changes my whole perspective and that is something that I actually quite like to do that when I'm just sitting somewhere listening that I channel a little bit my attention through that perspective and I think it's really a neurological phenomenon so there are studies that really show you can measure the difference in the brain when uh, people do that kind of thing and I gain a different perspective I think a little bit more maybe less self-centered more objective and more relaxed and that is that is actually a weird thing because I never like quite know what what to do with it, but because it's always different, but it's never bad. It's always good. Yeah, yeah. yeah I'm one of the things I'm interested in is your perspective and how you orient yourself around methods and yeah. methodologies. Can you just, maybe I just explain a little bit about how you think as yourself as an expert in, in methodologies? Yeah, yeah. expert is funny. I think the closest I personally always think how you can be to being an expert is probably like Sherlock Holmes when he's bored out in finding a new case. 
So when people throw things at you and you're like, yes, already know that one next. So this is a little bit how I think it feels probably to be an expert. Well, yeah, I think that maybe expert is not the right term, but how you think about how you orient yourself within academic work is yeah. probably the better way of phrasing it. Yeah, so um, for me, methods are great because they help me to solve things and to approach things in a systematic sense. So for the knowledge creation process, they are really nice. and. Like ultimately, I'm not really sure how I ended up in methods. Like some people channel things through theory. Some people are driven by topics, probably the majority, and I'm somewhat driven by methods. I think it's a little bit the like I'm looking for that procedural possibility to generalize, to find ways how you can repeatedly approach things and also find new things then. It's also about combining new things but having that kind of procedural security to solve problems, you know, to create solutions. That, that is what I like about it. But recently I thought that, like, I had a really good teacher when I was a student. He was very inspiring. And he was really cool for a long time until you came to the point that you wanted to have something empirical. And then he didn't know any, like, what uh, method that I would use today. And recently I thought maybe it was because of this, you know, maybe it was just this serendipity of having that teacher who was so inspiring for a long time. But when it came into something concrete and empirical, you were kind of like on your own. And um, I mean, that actually led me to having a PhD supervisor who was an expert on multivariate statistics and statistics in general and designs and all these things. So maybe these people were quite inspiring and I only realized that now because also for our students, right? It's important. Like, how do you make things concrete? It's for them very important. And that I like, you know, it's like you can theorize all day, They're fantastic things. I really love the method of the philosophical thought experiment. I think it's an awesome method, but it's also so awesome, non-empirical method, the only one I know, because it makes things concrete. It builds stories in people's head. Right? And that's why I, I love the, the thought experiment as a method, because it creates these stories that people can see, that they can listen to and so on. So and I think this is a little bit what methods do for me as well. They trigger thinking. Yeah. Yeah. Where do you see like the methodological orientation of sustainability science right now? Yeah, <laughs> that's a trick question. <laughs> I think it's uh, very, very difficult. To Only because I mean, Lufana and, and the faculty here is quite oriented in the sustainability science literature, and there's different people with different perspectives. You also have kind of ASU, you have a, a Lund in Sweden, and you have this. Yeah. Where, where, where is where does Lufana fit, or where, how do you think about sustainability science as an emerging type of discipline? Yeah. Um, so what I think is, and I often said this before. Um, like I think we increasingly understood how systems work. Like we have a pretty good understanding of what is going on on the planet, you know, at different scales. It's still open questions, but like take an example, we understand that like there's increasing alarming rate of how species are becoming extinct. There's a very clear understanding, at least if you're not the Donald, that uh, climate change is real, right? And we increasingly understand how precise it's real. But the, that knowledge is there, right? That system knowledge, we know that is there. 
Um, for us, this normative agenda, that normative knowledge is increasingly important, but also, I mean, we are in a long scientific tradition there, right? So, like, when you think of social science, when you think of psychology, we, we have a not-too-bad understanding, I think, um, how people think how people act, how kind of like actors work together in systems and so on. That is something that we definitely know uh, less about than the, let's say, facts of the system, but it's still, um, it's, it's not so bad in comparison to the transformational knowledge, right? That is known that this is the frontier. And for me, sustainability science is kind of like that bridge, you know, it's like, um, that future, that towards the future thinking, somebody so nicely once said it in philosophy, is about the world how it ought to be. And for me, sustainability science is the bridge between the world how it is and the world how it ought to be. It, it reminds me of another, another topic that we talked about, this shift from a disciplinary-oriented science system to a problem and solution-oriented science system. You know, Where do you see kind of sustainability science in terms of position within making that transition towards a problem and solution-oriented science system? I mean, and do you think that's actually a reality <coughs> mm -hmm. that we can actually, that academic will shift to that reorganization? I mean, you kind of see that now popping up in different topical orient institutes. You've seen some sort of topical oriented journals um, and some funding lines popping up, but still you kind of have the path dependency of the physical infrastructure of a university. You have the path dependency of the study programs within the university. Um, where do you see that transition taking place, if at all? Yeah, so I think that transition is happening since probably about decades. So since a long time, because I think the disciplinary tradition is partly rooted in the surplus that you had through colonialism, also the knowledge that came from the colonies uh, and many other complex things. But ultimately you had a surplus in a small amount of countries in the global north and they had kind of like the luxury of going deeper into certain types of knowledge. And I think this is how in Victorian age disciplines were formed. And at some point people understood that this is not working out. You know, it's I can't put my finger in it when it happened. But you, you for instance, you had a transition at some point from the like 1920s uh, psychoanalysis towards psychology. You know, and people had a kind of like suddenly a different understanding of why people act in a certain way, less mechanistic, I think more open. And that you saw in, in many, many areas. And from a methodological perspective, this was often the stage when people thought we need to open up, we need to become more systematic, maybe slightly more uh, scientific. And later, a little bit later, also uh, especially more qualitative, you know, questions of agency and so on, they, they became important. So. And I think uh, this trend I observed since decades, you know, since decades people become more open, especially in times of the internet, in times of like where everybody has a computer. Today we don't need to go to the library to get a book. It's quite a hassle, you know. We have these things just a mouse click away if anyone is still using a mouse. So it's, I think it's fantastic how these is opening up. And what people are interested in is how can we solve things? How can we fix things? Because the world is not entirely uncomplex. I always use the example of the Ebola crisis. What solved the Ebola crisis in Western Africa? I think we don't know, you know, because there were many, many things. There were epidemiologists, there were people like medical personnel working on the ground. There were people who said we need to change how people are burying the death. Uh, the trade routes were changed, so to have less exchange between regions and so on. So many, many things were attempted and ultimately it was solved. 
right? Which discipline solved that is, I think, irrelevant. I think it doesn't matter. And this is where our kind of like orientation towards a solution oriented agenda is shifting towards. What would be lost in shifting that structure? You know, what would be lost in the current science system for shifting towards topic and problem oriented science organization? So uh, personally, if you ask me, uh, deep down, I think nothing. Because I, I think people should be free. But the problem is, of course, people are afraid. People want to belong. Uh, people want to be in communities. Is that important? If you ask me long term, I think not. Um, because it is a question of global responsibility. It's a question of responsibility towards the scientific tradition that we cannot ignore, that we shouldn't forget. You know? But it's a question about how we are connected to each other. And I think this connection is for me more important than the fact that people sometimes like to like, think that there are differences. And personally, I don't understand. You know, it's for me, it's, it's very weird, but I have to face the reality that disciplines are going to be there for a long time. It's just, I can't imagine a future where disciplines will be that important. I think actually where they are important at all, I don't know. You know, it's, I think people will always work deeply and very focused on specific topics with specific methods, with specific theories. That construct of disciplines, I think, fleeting. How do you, that's kind of a global over, overview, but what is your perspective here, like in the position of being the dean of the faculty? How does that play out in the daily reality, this, this conflict of different disciplines, people focusing on different topics? Do you see any problems there for how you deal with the integration of, of different professors, different perspectives, or different working groups? It's a daily compromise, of course. It's diplomacy. Uh, here in the faculty, is fantastic. And I, I'm very happy because despite different origins, despite different schools of thinking, is a joint focus that I very strongly recognize. I think the majority of the people here have a joint focus. And you also recognize that it, the spirit of Leuphana University is, I think, much stronger than the universities where I say grew up, you know, where it was back then slightly different. They also changed now a little bit. But um, I think it's 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 really it's a privilege, you know, because we want to change these things. At least this is part of my agenda, and we have to be careful, because as I said, people are afraid. You know, it's disciplines are also resources, and people are afraid that resources are taken away from them. Also, personal identity. For some people, personal identity is very important. So um, I think reflecting about that and learning that we don't have to be afraid is very nice. Mm. I think this is a long-term project. Yeah, another thing I'm interested in, which kind of links us together, like how we met each other, was this idea of the student-driven systematic literature reviews. Like, What is your perspective on the value of doing those literature reviews, both from the student perspective, but also for science in general? 
Yeah. I mean, the, the idea first in my head was born here at Leuphana University because I became a professor. And before I made a review where I looked at about 8,000 papers. And when I finished with that, I knew I, I can never do that again you know, for like several months every lunchtime uh, going to the library. Back then it was really a library and looking at journals and going through them. So I thought maybe someone else can do that now. <laughs> and this is how this idea emerged to make that with students. You know, and then I thought it needs to be a fair deal because already back then when I did the review, I had students in my office that were doing um, GIS work, geographical information systems for me. And the deal was always, look, you're sitting here for a few weeks or months and you will do work for me, but you learn. And that is what I thought we can also do with the reviews, that it's uh, like some work to teach that to people and they have the benefit of learning. And then it becomes kind of like a joint deal, you know, and that seems to work out, I think, rather well, you know, that's, I think, for me, a helpful concept. Yeah, so the way that kind of started, I was involved in, in I guess, the first iteration of, of this project was the linking the two master programs between Lund University and between here at Lufana. Yeah. And then finding a way where students can learn about integrating uh, with faculty at various levels of the academic uh, hierarchy, you could say, learning how to do an academic project, learning how to do a systematic literature review in a structured way, and then that is then guided somehow by more senior, more senior experienced faculty. Um, what is your, how do you view that, the value of, of, of a systematic literature review for academic, yes. academic work? So for me, whenever I think a topic is interesting, I love to take a step back and look at the whole picture. And I think this is what we should do all the time. Whenever something is new, it's good to get an overview. You have that in PhD works and I also have that like on my own agenda. So for that is, I think is incredibly helpful. You know, the second thing is you learn how to look at a lot of papers. So, and that is, I think, a very beneficial scale, as I think, to, to like just be able to, to skim through all that papers and to extract the information. Like the first one, you remember, horrible, right? It takes so long to, yeah, and then at some point you just glance through them and you get all the data out and making it comparable, making it uh, that everybody gets the same information tricky, but still, I think, beneficial. And then the third thing for me is, the general like almost meta meta level like how is knowledge created how is extraction of knowledge created how are these intercultural settings and so on i think this is really like a new frontier of knowledge that is something that almost didn't exist before and it is is very interesting i mean meta analysis has been around since a long time but in medicine and psychology and they are often very defined clinical settings very comparable with us not you know, diverse and there is I think it's is more difficult and we have to be careful mm. yeah so if you're if you're thinking about a new project a new literature review or systematic literature review you'd like to do what are like the sequence of methodological steps that you would go through to approach that project mm. all the way from the scoping down to what type of analysis techniques would you actually use yeah. to look at the data so I think the first most important thing is should be a joint um, project between the people that are learning and the people that are teaching so it's good to have a topic that is rather fresh uh, that has enough literature so that you can review it, but it, it's difficult to make it with something that is completely like 
ten thousands of papers. So you need to find a topic that has this kind of sweet spot, you know, being emerging but having enough knowledge. So and then like setting this down and saying this is it. And often it's good if it's one thing that is vague, one thing that is concrete. So we had that, urban ecosystem services. Ecosystem services, very broad. We also wrote another review about it. But the urban makes it more concrete, I think more tangible. So for me, this is a good recipe. When, when you think conceptually, have one thing vague, one thing concrete. What you then need to do is this joint process um, to find a search string is I think already gold, you know, because this is really difficult, like how you find these things. And typically you have 95% or more false positives. So sorting that down is already a steep learning curve for the students. And then um, really extracting the um, information out of the true positives that is the next step, you know, how you get that out and how you translate that data into figures, into statistics, into data that you can interpret, also qualitative information. I think for me, the frontier is going big and going broad in the future. Like how do we get this like deeply normative contested information out is one thing. And how do we get stuff out of hundreds of thousands of papers? <laughs> Let's see. Exactly. It's going to be one of those other things. Exactly. So, you know, what are some of the statistical methods? You and I have used them on a few papers, mm -hmm. but how do you, how would you think for someone who's not as familiar with using quantitative methods to look at and summarize, mm -hmm. <coughs> excuse me, terminology or doing some sort of quantitative terminology or discourse analysis, how do, mm -hmm. how do you think about doing those? Yeah, so, I mean, like, for me in statistics, they are just universal working horses. The probably most important thing uh, when you have continuous variables, many people would know that are correlations. So, of course, when you have two continuous variables, you want to analyze these. What is often the case for us is that we count things, right? And we count categories. So when you do that, uh, bar plots, box plot, these types of things, they become important, right? So when you combine categories with uh, continuous variables, it's very, very irrelevant. But what we also often recognize is you have much information, many diverse types of information. This is where multivariate statistics come in. You want to cluster these things. You want to generate overviews, maybe like a principal component analysis, see which one like variable is correlated with other variables and so on. These are the general tools. The, the interesting thing for me is I think the tools are not many, you know, and they are also very rewarding because you can do many things with these few statistics and, and uh, few people know them. That is in sustainability science, I think is a slight problem. You know, it's like if you take the statistical education in psychology and management and so on, it's much better than probably in the average sustainability science program. And I think it makes us slightly vulnerable. So there I would be a little bit careful and would say the methods in the reviews is fairly set up. You can achieve much, uh, maybe 80, 90% of the results with few methods. Of course, it becomes more difficult when you look at the deeper meaning of words. That is a tricky thing, you know, how you extract that information. But when you look at many papers, you get count data, you get continuous variables, you get things where you can do standard stuff. I think it's not so complicated. It's less complicated than many people think it is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so one of, one of the, the reference points there is actually taking entire article PDFs or taking just the abstracts of the text and putting them into making the, the words of the text, the data itself, 
which then can be, you can see the relationships across the text in terms of the different terminology that they use and how those might cluster together. Yeah. Um, to look at, yeah, different fields or subsectors based on category, based on scale, based on methodology. Um, and you can kind of pull apart that landscape um, from the text itself um, yeah. across any different field or any niche. If you get, we gave the example of urban ecosystem services, but we all did also did that for tropical marine science. You can do it for nearly anything. And you guys are developing an R package for that now? How, exactly. how does that process work? Uh, so some colleagues proposed this back in the days, you know, and said, what if we let the words speak for themselves? And this is something that I got really hooked by because I have a background in multivariate statistics. So my supervisor, my PhD supervisor wrote a textbook about multivariate statistics. So I'm expected to know something about that. And uh, I started developing that together with Dave Epson. We strongly worked on that. And developing that um, whole code in the end uh, was hundreds of lines of code. And now, uh, with the help of like really, really good students, this is being translated into an R package and they really worked hard on that. And the nice thing is, again, what I think is so consolidating is no matter how much literature you throw at that, if it's, uh, say, coherent, that means like not too diverse, so it needs to be some sort of a like joint focus that people have on a certain topic you always find the same thing. It's funnily enough, first axis that you always find most important information explaining the variance, disciplines. <laughs> <laughs> Who would have thought, you know? So people are still kind of like necked by that, obviously. Second thing can be often methods, can be scales. Right? Quite often it scales, actually, that some people work on very fine scales on individuals and other people work maybe in systems or across the globe. So that is often the second most important information. And that is across very many diverse fields. It's, I think it's funny, you know, that like all sorts of like smaller branches in science seem to be organized around these same things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you think there's space you'd mentioned earlier when we were talking about doing a review of reviews, particularly in sustainability science? Do you think that where do you think that would add value? The point is um, like if you want to call it disciplines, I would speak of maybe arenas or branches of science, um, things ripen over time. So if you look at sustainability science 20 years ago, that was rather new and not so many people working on that. 10 years ago, it's about the time that we got this faculty, um, it increased, it got a little bit more, and now is exponential growth, what we always observe, right? And uh, we are already like past the peak of buzzwording. So I think today there's like a higher proportion of people who are really serious about it, and um, it's increasing. So now you have journals that really explicitly focus on that. And of course, this brings us closer to a discipline. You have study programs explicitly focusing on that and really genuine, I would say, true sustainability science, you know, not sustainable cement or something like that, but really like sustainability science. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of when you think of Thomas Kuhn, when you think of the how scientific disciplines evolve, one has to confess maybe towards the track of discipline. I would still be optimistic because I think for me personally, sustainability science should be rooted, as I said, in the scientific tradition so that other 
previous disciplines are not afraid. We need to build on their expertise, their experience, their knowledge. Uh, second thing is is responsibility, how we, how we pick our topics. I think it's the strongest normative responsibility. What are the topics that we work on? So this is very, the solutions we want to create is I think very high responsibility that we have. And about this we have to be aware, but then in sustainability science, we're different even when we work on the future then philosophy because empirical empirical work is i think one major difference and the other thing is because other people also work how we like what are the futures that we could reach take economics for instance but for us holistic perspective you know this is i think a, a difference that we have towards disciplines we try to bring these things together this is why we need to build on their expertise, right? But I think it's not going to be a discipline. I think these things are going to dissolve in the future. Yeah, it's interesting. When you when you think forward to, you know, the work that you would like to do in the next years, the next five years, what what is the main thing that you think about? Mm -hmm. So we have to see that now we are serious about um, sustainability science, meaning that we have to make our homework now. You know, when you look at the development of such new arenas, you always have some sort of a pendulum swing. And I think right now we are very much like leaning outwards and we have to remember that the good stuff happened before partly. So we have to do our homework. We have to look at things from other um, disciplines, for instance, from philosophies where I'm strongly interested in right now. And we have to see what did they do previously? How can we build on that? That is, I think, one arena that I, I want to work in. The other thing is um, diverse understanding of methods. You know, is I currently work on how we can have a holistic understanding of methods because today I think the the like dominating view is that disciplines are kind of like dictating the dogma of methods, and I think it's wrong. You know, because the knowledge that is created through that is repeating itself, and we have to find new combinations through methods how to create new knowledge and for me is I think really important getting a better hang of that is, is quite interesting you gave this nice analogy of, of methods and orchestra maybe you could explain that again yeah it's what I say that um, like I think methods are instruments you know so there's different things that you can do with different instruments and what I want to show um, the students but also other colleagues there is more difficult is the whole <coughs> orchestra and then people are often afraid, you know, because when you do new things with like different instruments, well, of course, you probably don't want to play something that was written for violins on the drums. So certain things not possible, right? But uh, the example that I then use playing Paganini on the saxophone is, I think, fantastic. You know, people should try that. It's maybe from the mechanics, a little bit tricky, but might be possible. There's crazy people out there, like masters of their instruments. And also overview, like the whole world cannot be built out of conductors. But I think right now we don't have enough conductors. You know, we have all these people playing their instruments and we should have people who also have this like stronger overview to have build connections. Yeah, I mean, one of the biggest challenges, it's also some of the work that I do is this comparability aspect. And, you know, where do you see then the role of this idea of the conductor in terms of coordinating the different methodologies in terms of solving the comparability problem? Mm -hmm. So 
like, I, there's a really nice TED talk about conductors that I very much like. And there is uh, one thing that as a dean, I can't say it's a rule for me. It's just something that I sometimes remember. Richard Strauss, he wrote down the rules of good conducting. And one rule is never look at the trombones. It only encourages them. And I think <laughs> this is like, you know, the one, one really good example how, you know, we are still living in a constructed reality that you have to be aware of. But of course, would be also slightly sad reality, especially for the trombones, you know. So I think having this like like larger perspective, this reflexivity of the conductor yeah. is very important. So for me, the like what I think how I would see my future uh, would be to be one of those conductors who hardly moves. I think this is very nice conductors, you know, who just little like very tiny movements every now and then. But on the other end, like when you think of one of the conductors uh, that that I really like, Lenny Bernstein, like he drove people nuts, uh, like really crazy, you know, like what he did to musicians. Some people argue uh, harsh, but what he got out of the musicians also fantastic. So probably uh, same as today, we will in the future have a diverse set of conductors and everybody needs to find their role that is fitting to the institutions. Yeah. Uh, the Vienna yeah. Philharmonics were, I think, uh, pretty good under certain conductors. You know? And there is, I think, finding these different roles, these different flavors and orchestras can be vicious. You know, they are like the Berlin Philharmonics if they don't accept a conductor i heard it can be really tricky you know it's like for them find after simon rattle finding a new one i heard long journey you know is <laughs> can be and if they don't accept you it can be really tricky so yeah. will also be diversity i think needs to fit the place and you need to find different people right well for me it seemed you know one of these core tensions between the the need for having a conductor would be the the kind of debate or the partition between qualitative and quantitative research i mean how do you kind of view how those two aspects is generalized as they are when you make a statement like that mm. uh as as mutually reinforcing each other and, and beneficial yeah so if you would ask me again personally it's probably weird because i'm considered to be an expert more on the quantitative side i think we have less understanding about the qualitative uh, right now it's I think there's more information out there about how people see things how people perceive things that we don't understand is for me actually the where I think in the future more will happen also because on the quantitative stuff uh, much already happened of course new stuff is coming around the corner all the time but we are building on a very long tradition there. When you compare, for instance, to interviews, if you take open interviews, people don't do open interviews since a very long time. Right? It's rather fresh compared to statistics. It's weird to me, actually. So, but the core thing is to acknowledge that both areas are important under given circumstances and even can confirm each other, I think. You know, it's like ultimately I cannot imagine that uh, there shouldn't be linkages and people need to understand that and right now I mean speaking of disciplinary dogmas like you get a quantitative and a qualitative person together over a coffee 
like if they can talk to each other at all they will insult each other all the time <laughs> right it's like for them really difficult um, most of them and i think um not helpful why these conflicts because they, like both towards knowledge and different types of knowledge right mm -hmm. and then many people think about uh, like mixed methods but for me mixed methods are basically just things that are put together Mm -hmm. So, and that is for me really important, you know, that people realize that because like methods are often stuck in boxes. And I often say you have to unbox your method. You have to understand how it connects to other things. And maybe the vital information for the quantitative folks is the qualitative thing. Like I always use the example, like you can model wildlife all day. Where when you find out, oh, look, the wildlife is never at the edge of the forest. And at some point you speak to a hunter and he says, yeah, I'm at the edge of the forest. You know, <laughs> you never get that information. If you don't talk yeah. to that person for once, you will never understand it. Right, right. Yeah, there's a lot of terminologies, mixed methods, multiple methods, interdisciplinary methods. I mean, do those have some sort of meaning to you? Or how do you think about when you read a text that says that, what, what is kind of the normative understanding of what that means? Yeah, um, so mixed methods are becoming an increasing thing and there's a certain confidence that is more interesting if something is called mixed methods, like the paper might be interesting for me. Still, I think it's again building a community, almost like building a discipline, like people try to again build these like things where they want to belong. You know, and this is why I said I want to put these things together in language that is known and understandable. And I just say, look, like quantitative, qualitative, you put these things together. Like mm -hmm. what is scenario planning? Yeah. It can be both, right? Yeah. I don't understand yeah. why we again need to channel that into like smaller sub-communities. Yeah, there's not, this is a bit of a sidestep now. Like what I know you think a lot about philosophy, um, particularly um, Derek Parfait. Yes. You mentioned earlier, you often mention him. Because you know, how do you think about the role of philosophy in thinking in sustainability science? So if you asked me, I, I, you already realized I'm not so gentle on disciplines. But probably the last one that is going to remain is, I think, philosophy. And I always tell our students, it, like, if it's not your main focus, after hours in the evening, you should all be philosophers. Is I think because we need to think about the world how it ought to be. We need to think about how we can contribute, who we are, uh, and what also makes us happy. Is I think very important, and I think ultimately these answers are, are um, at least very strongly in philosophy. Uh, people need to focus on that, and I wish that there would be a future of less ignorance where more people would be aware of these things, would think about it. But it's hard. The society is biased against that. It's, uh, we're not educated to be philosophers. Why do you think that is? I mean, is it more? Yeah, I'm, I'm just curious. What do you think is why? Why do you think that's the case? Oh, I don't know. It's <laughs> education is a long, uh, slowly developing process, right? Yeah. And philosophy, some people think, is not important. It's economic focus right now. Yeah. Right. And uh, that is currently questioned. Like in the past, having a bachelor degree would be, as Ken Robinson said, like a guarantee for a job today is not the case. So we have to think how these systems are changing. And this is, I think, why we, actually we are returning a little bit, I think, to the humanities, looking back at these things at this perspective, because it's so important. Like right now, 
more people have the economic freedom to think uh, who am I, how can I contribute, what do I want. And I think this is very important. So, But it's going to be a slow process because people are being told they should have other goals like a, a, a faster car or other consumption. Right. And mm -hmm. I think these things are less relevant and more people will recognize that in the future. But it's it's not it's not going to be a revolution it will have happened at some point And people will think like, why did we want fast cars before? But it's really hard to see how long this is going to take. Yeah. Is that something that's integrated into the study programs here at Lufana? This aspects of philosophy and sustainability thinking? We have that partly. I mean, but I think this is also something that is more or less something that we need to do continuously as a community. That is the important thing, because education is nothing that ends at some point, I think. I think we should have continuous lifelong education. And I think it's also tricky. I mean, of course, we try that and we have that in certain courses and lectures. But the point is, this is something very personal for each and every single person. This is also why I think it's so important to do that after hours. It's related to meditation. It's related to doing sports, maybe being in the kitchen. You know, making your own food can be all sorts of things, but people need to try things out and need to find out what makes me happy, what makes me connect to other people, and how can I be in equilibrium, all these things. Mm. You know, and I think this is something that is actually quite strong in the sustainability science community. Sometimes it even becomes a burden. You know, people trying to live sustainably and they bash each other's heads in. Like exactly. I show my students, look, I have a shirt made out of bamboo and they look at me and say, bamboo is not sustainable. <laughs> you know, but it's better than cotton. You know, <laughs> So they, they just do that all the time, you know, and they push us. I think it's nice because like we need to we need to understand. We need to understand and reflect better. Uh, how we want to live. But I think there's not the way for any given person. We need to try things out. Right, right, right. Yeah, philosophy can play a role there. One other thing that you mentioned was that there's a data science program. It's a master's program here. It's a master's program. It's yeah. a master's program in the Faculty of Sustainability. No, that's a nice thing. It's in the economics. And they accept me from sustainability science and teaching there for which I'm very grateful. Like they approached me early on before it started. And it's a huge success. It's, I don't know. I think it's 700 applications for 24 uh, positions they have, of course, because data science is so big. And I like sometimes I feel a little bit like as if I'm like the like the normative person in that study program because the economic focus uh, different focus, but it's for me super interesting. Very diverse group of students, very international, and also slightly different mindsets. So I learn a lot out of that, and it's always very dynamic group. It's really good students. I also recruit some of these uh, into my own uh, group. And I mean, they do Herculean things in terms of like how they teach, how they analyze data and all these things is really cool. And I think is if you ask me, is even related to sustainability science, because these are people that solve things that create solutions without a clear discipline, because data science is not a discipline. Right? Right. So learning from data, machine, all that stuff, they are a little bit like, yeah, just give me the data, you know, whatever. Yeah, that was going to be kind of my next question. You know, where do you see data science, which you kind of see more and more nowadays? It's more of a buzzword you hear. 
uh, definitely growing with with big data sets emerging and, and things like this. But you know, where is that contribution to sustainability science in your view? Or when you have students and you integrate them into your lab, what types of projects do you have them work on? Yeah, I mean, that's for me, I think is a nice situation because through methods, I have very diverse focus. What I actually did recently, uh, I mean, I have these projects that I need to focus on that I mentioned, but uh, recently I mapped what kind of postdocs, PhDs, what kind of people do I have in my lab and where am I uh, lacking expertise? And then I realized I had this like really good students that I had in a bachelor's course who's studying economics. And he's now part of my lab working as a student assistant. And it's really funny because he's one of the radicals in the economics department. I always have to calm them down and say, look, I didn't agitate him. You know, it's like he he just is very reflexive yeah. uh, because he's very bold. They try to change the uh, economics as well, which I think is a very good thing to uh, consider in certain aspects. Right. But it's the same as in sustainability science. You shouldn't forget the scientific tradition that is built and rooted in a long line of thinking. So I really mapped out where am I lacking expertise and especially for me what is important and it's difficult to say now is each every single person has their own potential and I very secretively have somewhere I don't say where information in what I think personally what's the best for that person. And I always try to kind of balance like what do I need and what is the diversity that I have in my team and what needs solving, you know, so that the people can develop. Uh, because I had the same privilege uh, that I learned from, for instance, many diverse data sets from different people mm. and from different projects. So and for them, it's the same. And it's, if you ask me, incredible, such a diverse team, so focused, so disciplined and uh, most important thing. Uh, don't not so serious is I think yeah, yeah. Um, the, the, the strongest things that we moved were really always um, when they for instance question me when they question each other so that is I think that reflexivity is really helpful mm -hmm. and there are the projects I mean that's methods in all sorts of directions I think the smallest common denominator are somewhat methods you know? and, and with some people you couldn't even say methods maybe modes how we want to do research. Mm -hmm. That is what I think unites these people. How many people do you have in the working group right now? Yeah, it's about uh, like I would say a dozen people that I feel responsible uh, for plus student assistance. It's a little bit of a vague calculation, like some get finished right now. I see this increasing trend that some of my PhD students, like when I think they are finished, they have all the papers. Then, you know, you have this phase that it still takes a bit of time until the papers are accepted and so on. Yeah. And they now all get jobs, which is very nice. They really get good positions and I think they can contribute also uh, in other areas. So, uh, but since few people left now and they still have to finish, but I always calculate it's about a dozen people. Like during the deanship, I don't want to have more than a yep. dozen people. And then there's the student assistants. And that was actually the best move I think I did in the last years. Having the student assistants in the lab meetings, having uh, these people really integrated into the group in the discussions that we have at least every week we have a meeting and also when we work on more specific tasks 
because um, the brains are not so different. It's a little bit difference in experience that they easily counterbalance with their boldness, with their eagerness to contribute in all these things, you know. So there, that really changed a lot of things. And uh, for me, it's, it's very, very helpful. And I learn a lot through that. Yeah. How, what do you, I was talking with some colleagues about this earlier, you know, like when you go through a hiring process or you're looking for a student who you might want to integrate into your lab, what are some of those characteristics that you look in in a student um, who, mm. you, who is interested in joining your lab? I mean, of course it's diversity. It's the diversity of the team that you have to see does that fit. They, they, so it's, I think it's on an individual case by case basis. There are some general traits where I could say that I like. So if you would ask me if you want to make a PhD, it's probably helpful to be able to generalize information. I think this is something that you need to do in a PhD because you need to make decisions. You need to say, this is how I see it now. And I know there's more diversity and complexity and so on out there, but these are the main patterns. And having that ability is, I think, one thing. And that allows people to focus so that they can really do this, what I like so much and what I teach all the time. I think some people can't even hear it anymore. Uh, Occam's razor. So kind of like these people who are their own Occam's razor, you know, that they know everything needs to be as simple as possible and as complex as necessary. And this is where I try to lead people because especially early in the career, you recognize that people think things are more complicated and maybe later in the career think it's too simple. So for me, it's l nice balancing, right? And right, this is right. what I see in people. But honestly, I have to say the students here are so motivated and they are so, I mean, they are all activists because of sustainability science and so on, right? So it, there is really fantastic. There's so much to be learned. Yeah, so when you think about how you structure the group, then it's kind of picking the different, I mean, you want to have diversity in the group, but where, you know, what is that diversity that you would like to see from your perspective? Yes, people need to be close enough so that they still want to link to each other, but different enough so that they learn from each other. If you would only have the same people, for me, it would be incredibly boring. I think this is probably how the majority of labs is constructed around the globe. I don't know. Maybe they have smaller diversities within their sub-communities. Yeah. So, and the, 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 the other thing is um, the communication. And that you need to really be able to find somewhat like a joint protocol, how you can exchange. Uh, and it's often a joint mindset. Right. So it's, that is important for people that mm. they realize, OK, like there's a, a general um, similar understanding here in certain aspects. Right. And that, I think, is also a little bit that people learn in the team and it emerged in the team. Like, for instance, one example is people started writing these protocols about the weekly meetings. Well, I thought it was a good idea. And um, somebody came up with the idea, I remember one uh, student assistant, what she did is she wrote them in a somewhat funny way. And that was the point when people st actually started reading these protocols because it was fun. You know, it was, yes. and, and it, it, it had this nice level of what I mentioned before that they didn't take me too serious, didn't take each other too serious, but still was this general admiration of the like overall thing. And that made these protocols really good, you know, as I think is very, very important. Yeah. What's uh, what's on the agenda when you're looking down the line and we guys have any big projects coming up? Mm, sure. 
uh, some probably uh, I have to think now confidential, <laughs> but I say that general lines of thinking uh, right now, um, I would think go into three directions. So one direction, of course, is the most personal one, methodological one. So there are many ideas, also some applications and so on that try to explore the methodological horizon further. How can we combine things? How can we find even apply methods in a like completely new context and so on? Sometimes even develop new methods. Like I think with the, the I would love to, with the machine learning, do reviews with machine learning so that we don't have to read all the papers, machine will right. do that. Yeah. It would be for like long term, maybe a good idea if you can train an algorithm to extract information because then you can go broad, what I mentioned before. So that's the uh, own personal focus. Now, second focus, and I think there is also good for my lab, the uh, team is working together with the faculty, together with the deanship. Quite often people think also about these things in my team. So sustainability focus, how we further uh, build sustainability science as a own arena, I would say, as some sort of a kind of like connected thing in the in the scientific canon. That is, I think, the second goal. Right, you know, and I think the best uh, there for the next years is going to be empirical evidence. What I mentioned before is not we shouldn't always work too much conceptually because so much has been said before. We need to test these things, you know, and we have to be careful because I think climate change, biodiversity, maybe ecosystem services were the last things that we really tested empirically. We have a tendency because of the great acceleration in society to have new topics before we tested the old ones empirically, you know, tested the theories and all mm -hmm. associated with that. So there is a problem. We need to be aware of that in, I think, sustainability science. And the uh, third thing is, of course, general dissolving of uh, disciplines. You know, it's, I think uh, we need to build bridges. We need to tear down these walls, like not have these towers, these ivory towers anymore. We need to connect. Uh, and that is, I think, very relevant also with society. So in there, the projects that we do are often transdisciplinary, often out in the real world, that is the actual frontier. You know, it's like it's really difficult because you want to be rigorous. You want to make scientific work. I mean, if uh, every person out there on the street could do science, it would be a different world. But right now it's not the case, yeah. I think. One other question that I had was how you think about the current funding landscape in Germany <laughs> and what is how is the funding landscape at all moving towards a direction which is funding those types of projects? Yeah, so the problem and this is a global problem um, is the short funding cycles. Everything is on a maybe three year, uh, four year, people are lucky five years, right? Can happen, but it's, this is kind of like the maximum that you get. You have these yeah. really rare outlier projects that are longer. I think what is a good strategy, what we also attempt, one colleague there, um, Daniel, he's very visionary. You have to think in clusters of projects. You have to focus, for instance, on one area as we do with Lüneburg here. And you have to think how can we have several projects focusing on that, building a coherent canon. I think this is one strategy how you can get around that because the problem that we have is we need longer term observations about systems, about people, but especially about change. 
Like we need to understand changes in other areas. And if you think of economics, if you think of psychology, longitudinal studies, so obvious. And we don't do that enough. You know, and often this is where um, people lose me when they talk about complexity, because I think long-term change will be fairly understandable. But we are lacking this capacity strongly right now. So the funding landscape is not giving us that and we need to find strategies. There's much whining going on about the funding cycles and so on. It doesn't help. Uh, I think we need to change that and we're going to change that probably on a maybe in 20, 30 years. Right. And why do we have to like live with it how it is right now? Mm -hmm. Like the whining, I think that doesn't help. So we have to be also creative. There's often uh, look at the US. The Donald triggered the like, greatest amount of private funding that you could ever wish for. Yeah, right? yeah. Of course, state funding went down in many areas. <laughs> right. But these things are changing. We need to find new creative solutions. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it links a little bit. Uh, one other thing that I know that you've been involved in a lot is this, this push for integrating institutes internationally with each other. So one of that is Lund University in Sweden, mm. and the other one is with ASU. Yeah. Maybe you can comment, like, what, what has been the benefit? What are kind of the motivations behind connecting internationally? So I, as a child, I was very privileged um, because my parents somehow, uh, we were often around for holidays, for, like all sorts of occasions. And uh, like I saw many countries when I was growing up and for me that was very impressive you know like I always say this uh, book that you have also a movie The English Patient it kind of summarizes my early childhood memories because it was basically the Sahara Desert and Tuscany so it's <laughs> really weird you know uh, and um, I, all these different cultures I think is very important to understand because of the unity, the unity of people. People are I think more similar um, and more connected than they think they are. Understanding that is I think important. And uh, this is why I think these, these international exchanges to understand different contexts, different cultures, to connect to people and to understand how we can further build on that interconnectedness is I think very important you know the skills the competencies that you can get out of that I always tell all students see that you get as far enough as soon as possible of course we also want them here but uh, our students are very uh, energetic and they often go to other places which again is the privilege uh, of um, this small circle of people that we have here we i think we need that more and we need to find meaningful ways because often is the carbon footprint and i wasted a lot of carbon in the past today like still as a dean sometimes i have to go to places but i would wish in the future maybe in the long future uh, maybe when i'm retired i would always go somewhere for three months because that is the point when you can't return home because then home is different and you learn a lot where you are. So right. I think this is important. And that's why for study programs, it's so important that people stay at least for a whole semester, because then you go through all the stages in how you be, are being absorbed by a culture, how you learn mm -hmm. and what you take back. Yeah? And there for me is weird. Um, maybe it's a German perspective. The uh, greatest uh, lack of openness that I always realized was in Germany 
after 40 countries you know is uh, many like much openness uh, people welcoming me being very friendly and for me and i think it's maybe partly because i'm german feels sometimes very weird here <laughs> maybe cold climate as well uh, but it's so i think this is what we need to learn people need to learn to connect um, because for me again constructs you know same like discipline same like gender countries are constructs you know and the cultural identity for people is very very important and i think it's going to be important for a long time maybe the longest but it's still people need to realize how connected we are yeah it reminded me of something i think you told me many years ago about the importance of of having that fieldwork experience and having case studies which are yours that yeah. nobody else has that experience and you were there you had that experience you always have that empirical knowledge and like that that idea of going to a place for a longer period of time which you just explained but in academic context always having that ability to say okay i can understand this concept always in relation to a case which i've been if i have a difficulty understanding the, yeah. the grasping that concept in practice yeah and that is is today so regrettable because of the uh, what i call the bolognese the bologna process in europe like students don't have time anymore and the system expects them to be so fast and efficient mm -hmm. and count the points and all these things and i think is you have to work hard but um, you also have to take the time to get to know this empirical understanding is i think very important and for me again privilege right because uh, while i was studying i was already like months and months around and then one and a half years in mongolia a year in argentina and uh, i never felt more german than in argentina i learned so much like i think they surpass us in like incredible amounts of things you know it's for me like this perspective that i gained there and now i probably i don't know all systems but when you describe a system to me I can kind of imagine how it looks like, you know, and that is, I think, something that you can establish that kind of idea how a place is in your head is so important because then you understand what the problems of the people are and you can contextualize things, you know, and I think it's tearing down borders, it's creating connections for me. So also empirical connections, you know, yeah. because otherwise you would always uh, think, uh, why do people do that here and there? Like, this is stupid. They should understand. But th I think people are not stupid. You know, it's, I think it's me who doesn't understand. And that is, I think, helpful to have been there and to understand these different contexts. Mm -hmm. Yeah, is that something that you do often? Like if someone brings in a new concept and you're trying to think about how it, what it would look like in practice that you draw back on those older case studies or places that you've been to s and try to interpret that kind of in a heuristic way? Yeah, constantly. And I mean, we do that all the time, right? Whenever we um, connect to memories in our brain, I think we, when we build on past experience, we contextualize things. And having that kind of like case study experience for me is today really weird. Like I have some colleagues still who have that, and I mean, when I think of my uh, first boss at university, he was for literally decades in high Asia. But it, like today, people don't have that. I had the weird situation how I was once at a workshop and I was the only person and it becomes a little bit weird. The only person who was 
like say beyond Greece you know and then like when you sit in the evening and you think oh now we are sharing this like stories by the fire and nobody has these stories you know <laughs> and they, they, at some point you have to stop right because then it becomes annoying to people and but for me it was so weird because the whole day we were talking about a specific topic I'm not saying which one now where I thought but where have you seen that like if you haven't been out there they put that into numbers they modeled it they calculated it down but they never actually saw it And I think it makes a huge difference. You know, this mm. is where like sometimes today when you see young students or also uh, like future professors and so on, when you see applications then you're so impressed and it is impressive, but it's also problematic sometimes because you have people who are so young who are in positions where you know from now on you will never have the time to get this empirical experience. You know, so when you are say a professor, like and you're really young and ambitious it's really nice but you know okay now you're part of the machine and you will never be able to be out there for three months you know even if it's a waste of time like uh, you get some knowledge out of it and it is a little bit regrettable that sometimes i think it's too it became too efficient yeah yeah exactly yeah when you think back to your time in mon in mongolia doing field work what is what are some of the first memories that you have <laughs> yeah, I, I really love it. I had an in, incredibly compassionate uh, colleague who she picked me up from the airport and she was with the team. She was in the capital and we were driving south. And I think it was good that I was on that journey with her because I, I, I thought I knew a little bit what would expect me because I was in Nepal before and from the high mountains in Nepal, I knew a little bit of we were driving to the Gobi Desert to the mountains. But at some point we were in central Mongolia Mongolia and there is no mountains there there's no hill but you can see very far you know you can maybe see a hundred kilometer far and we were standing in this flat surface and there was nothing you know it felt a little bit like the dark side of the moon and I was standing there and was really like thinking what have I gotten myself into and having her with that experience with me there gave me a strong feeling of security and I mean then we arrived at the mountains at some point and we you got a little bit uh, that, that kind of like localization but it's really weird because you are looking everywhere and as one friend back then put it maybe the pictures that I had from Mongolia they look so nice because no one is standing there like when you are standing in Mongolia you're always standing somewhere and you know okay there are some Mongolians here but you look into the landscape and basically you can see a hundred kilometers far and you don't see any living soul <laughs> and it is a really like for me a uh, very interesting experience you know how you always come back to yourself uh, for me incredible and explains um, also the Mongolians as a tribe as a people Uh, they like uh, for instance you would never like I personally would never win against a Mongolian in chess because they are such deep thinkers because of course when you're sitting in the step and the only like you have this chess game and no, not like us completely overwhelmed with all these things they are incredibly good you know in many things and and that is was for me interesting like understanding all these things this different perspective was very nice 